Recently, I had the opportunity to narrate the very fun podcast, Echoes of History, Ragnarok, a historical podcast inspired by the video game Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. If you know names like Thor, Loki, and Odin, just wait until you hear the tales of how they came to be and how they came to an end. It's the second season of Ubisoft's popular podcast, Echoes of History. Subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge five all-new episodes narrated by yours truly, as well as the first season about Vikings, available now. You can find the Echoes of History podcast where you're listening to this podcast, so subscribe now. That's Echoes of History, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the History Guy podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of the History Guy podcast is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. Today, the History Guy talks about two things that millions of people around the world deal with every single day. The lines on the road and tires. Both have interesting histories that might surprise you. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. When Americans first started driving automobiles, we really hadn't set up rules or laws to operate the thing safely. In fact, for most of many decades, there wasn't even a line down the center of the road to delineate the lanes. In the fall of 1917, Dr. June McCarroll was driving her Ford Model T down the road near Indio, California when she was run off the road by a truck. She later said of the event, My Model T Ford and I found ourselves face to face with a truck on a paved highway. It didn't take me long to choose between the Sandy Berth to the right and the 10-ton truck to the left. And that's when I had my idea, pinning a white line down the center of the highways of the country as a safety measure. The California Department of Transportation credits Dr. McCarroll with the idea of painting a center line, but she wasn't actually the first to have that idea. You know, today that line down the middle of the hundreds of thousands of miles of roads around the world is, is so common. It makes such common sense, it's hard to imagine roads without them. But the history of delineating lanes on roads is actually surprising. And it deserves to be remembered. There are some early examples of lane marking. Well, jubilee years, years of forgiveness, are mentioned in the Bible, chapter of Leviticus. The tradition in the Western Catholic Church was started by Pope Boniface VIII in 1300 AD. So many people, as many as 200,000, came to Rome for the event that Boniface had a continuous line painted down the middle of each road in Rome to help manage the crowds. The line did not, however, denote the direction of traffic, but the type. Horses and carts would be on one side, foot traffic on the other. In 1600 AD, a road near Mexico City used lighter colored stones to denote a center line. Markings of a center line were used sporadically on bridges in the U.S. and elsewhere in the 19th century. New York City was using pavement lines to mark crosswalks as early as 1911. Conventions for the direction of travel developed with time and were largely set by the 19th century, although the world still not come to an agreement whether traffic should move to the left or to the right. Early traffic tended to have the traveler on the left, a tradition possibly derived so that your sword hand would face the road in case the person on the other side was an enemy. 
America took the convention of traffic moving on the right, a tradition which developed in the 18th century to make it easier to pass large agricultural wagons where the driver would control the horse team from the left rear horse, leaving his right hand free to control the whip. It was easier for the driver to see that he was clearing traffic that was passing to his left. Keep to the right laws were passed in both France and the United States in 1792. England, however, continued the tradition of traffic moving on the left, which was codified in the Highway Act of 1835 and is still followed in most of the former British Empire. But roads, for the most part, still did not have marked lanes, but the advent of the automobile and greater speeds made the need for such markings more apparent. Somewhat surprisingly, the move to mark those lanes appeared to originate in the United States. Americans were actually slow to join the auto boom. The first patent of a two-stroke engine in the U.S. didn't come until 1895, and Henry Ford's first car, the four-wheeled Ford Quadricycle, followed in 1896. Up until 1904, the majority of cars built in the world were built in Europe. But by 1907, American production had grown to outpace European production, and Ford was about to change the game. Turning his attention to the problem of production, Ford instituted the moving assembly line in 1913. His innovation meant that cars that used to take 12 man-hours to build could now be built in less than 90 man-minutes. The reason that the Model T was any color as long as it is black was because the fastest drying paint was black and any other color would have slowed production. Cars became a sensation in the States. Between 1907 and 1917, they essentially replaced horses and carriages as the primary mode of transportation, a transition that was so quick that it outpaced society's ability to adjust. In 1910, there were only five cars per 1,000 people in the United States. But by 1920, that number had increased 17-fold to 86 per 1,000. There were some unique circumstances that led to America's fast adoption of the motor vehicle. Perhaps most importantly, the industrializing country was huge, and large distances often needed to be covered for business or pleasure, which made the advantage of a relatively expensive purchase greater than it was in Europe. Another advantage was growing wages, partially encouraged by Henry Ford's instituting an audacious $5 a day wage and the dramatic drop in prices for cars in the early 20th century. When the Model T was introduced in 1908, it sold for $825. By 1912, the Model T runabout sold for $525, less than the average annual income in America, and the price continued to drop to a mere $290 in 1927. Cars became ubiquitous very soon after they were introduced. They became faster and faster, and paved roadways proliferated in an attempt to keep up. By 1918, there were over 10,000 motor vehicle deaths in the U.S. a year. As with many innovations, safety precautions and law systems were slow to keep up with the pace of technological change. It took a single decade for cars to become the primary mode of transportation in the United States, and the speeds man could now go with ease produced problems that had never been considered properly. In 1901, Connecticut became the first state in the country to institute a speed limit on motor vehicles, 12 miles an hour in town, 15 miles an hour on rural roads. Cars could go much faster than that. In 1911, a world record had been set by Bob Berman at Daytona Beach by going 141 miles an hour. While most cars couldn't go that fast, they had turned trips that took days into a matter of mere hours. One of the greatest challenges was lanes. With wagons and carriages, muddy roads developed ruts that were easy to follow. And while accidents were not trivial, they moved slowly enough that it was comparatively simple to avoid someone else on the road. 
Like Dr. McCarroll in California, many people run off the road in the face of trucks and larger vehicles barreling toward them on unmarked roads and around blind corners. While there is some disagreement, the first appearance of lane markings in the U.S. has been traced to Michigan, according to the Michigan Department of Transportation. The first line was painted in 1911 on River Road in Wayne County, Michigan, put there at the instigation of Edward N. Hines. Edward was a major innovator in road safety, spearheading the Good Roads Organization to improve public roads in Michigan in the 1890s. Hines also built the first stretch of concrete road in the world in 1909 and served on the Wayne County Board of Roads when it was created in 1906, alongside Henry Ford himself. He is generally recognized as one of the most significant figures in the designing of roads and won several awards to that fact after his death. Hines was said to have the original idea of pinning a line down the middle of the road when he saw a milk truck go by that was leaking milk and thus leaving a white line behind him as it passed. And while the idea has become since a bedrock of traffic control, it took some time for it to catch on nationally. In 1917, in addition to Dr. McCarroll, several other people had the idea to paint lines, apparently independently of one another, in three different states. In Michigan, Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer, as engineer superintendent of Marquette County, painted a white center line along a dead man's curve. In Oregon, Deputy Sheriff Peter Rexford came up with the idea while on a bus driving on a dark rainy night. The county refused to fund the project, so Chief Deputy Martin Pratt paid for the paint that was later painted on the Columbia River Highway between Crown Point and Multnomah Falls in April 1917. It was later that fall that Dr. McCarroll was run off the road near Indio, California. Dr. McCarroll holds unique place in the story, however, because her work went beyond just coming up with the idea. When the local Chamber of Commerce was uninterested in her plan, McCarroll painted the line herself. She instigated a letter-writing campaign that would help convince the state of California to adopt the measure universally in November 1924, and the State Highway Commission painted the lines. But at the time, there were few, if any, standards or guiding principles for markings, and where those standards or guiding principles did exist, they were on a local level, and there was no coordination between local agencies. The process for standardizing markers took time. In January 1927, the American Association of State Highway Officials published a Manual and Specifications for the Manufacture, Display, and Erection of U.S. Standard Road Markers and Signs. While this manual was the first national manual on traffic control devices, it addressed only signs in rural areas and did not address pavement markings. In 1930, the National Conference on Street and Highway Safety published a manual on street traffic signs, signals, and markings. The manual recommended pavement lane markings in a number of cases, for example on curves of less than 600 foot radius, and also on hill crests where the view ahead is insufficient to permit overtaking the passing in safety. Center lines were also recommended on streets with high traffic both directions and streets wide enough to have more than one lane either direction. Lines were recommended to be at least four inches wide and be white or yellow on bituminous pavement and black or white on concrete. The use of black lane markings became less popular during the Second World War, when black markings could not be seen while driving under blackout conditions. The use of broken lines to note places where lane changing is permitted was not defined until a new manual was produced in 1948. The original purpose of the dashed lines was to save costs by reducing the amount of paint needed to mark lanes. The length of the lines and gaps was not defined, but the manual said it should be well proportioned. The manual further noted that on rural highways, a commonly used standard of 15-foot segments with 25 gaps was normal. No national standard was adopted until 1978. Research shows that people tend to underestimate the length of the broken lines, with people surveyed most commonly assuming that the lines are two feet long with equal gaps in between. In fact, 
Since 1978, the broken lines in the U.S. are standardized to be 10 feet long with a 30-foot gap in between. Thus, every time your car passes a new dashed line, it has traveled 40 feet, far further than most people assume. For years, states had local rules for what colors of paint to use on the roads for different purposes, and especially heated was the debate between whether white or yellow paint should be used to divide highways. By November 1954, 43 years after the first center line was painted, 47 of the then 48 states had decided to use white as the dividing line, and Oregon, the last state, capitulated later that year. In 1958, the interstate U.S. Bureau of Public Roads adopted white lines to divide lanes. But in 1971, the Federal Highway Administration required now that all center lines on two-way roads be painted yellow, while white center lines were used to demarcate lanes of traffic going in the same direction, the now familiar system that we use today. It took some time for other nations to adopt the painting of a center line lane marker. Actually, most countries didn't embrace automobiles like the United States did until after the Second World War, but by the 1950s, automobiles were growing in popularity worldwide, and most nations came up with some system of painting a center line that's fairly similar to what we've come up with in the United States. New technologies can often upset the social order, take a while to develop the, the rules of the laws needed to manage that technology. It can take a surprising amount of time to even do the obvious. It can even take a surprising amount of time for the obvious to become obvious. But the history of painting centerline road markers tells us that a few people with a good idea, willing to make a small change, could make, well, a large difference. Today, both Edward Hines and Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer are in the Michigan Transportation Hall of Honor. And the section of road on which Dr. McCarroll first painted her white line is now named in her honor, the Dr. June McCarroll Memorial Freeway. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. These kinds of stories are a bit special in terms of the various kinds of histories that we do, because when you're writing something about like a particular technology or, you know, in this case, road lines, it has kind of some unique challenges in terms of storytelling. And so what can you say about the writing process of these kinds of stories? Uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting question, and, and actually you're, uh, you better participate in the answer because you actually wrote this script. If people didn't know that, Josh wrote the Roadline script. But That's a fair uh, point. I am a storyteller. I always think of myself as a storyteller. Uh, and it's a story, you know, you have a, you have a beginning, you have a middle with a challenge, you have an end with a resolution, you tell it like a story with a story arc. And so when you do talk about a piece of technology, it's, it's different because there's not so much a story arc there. But I think if you see, you know, we still do, uh, you know, tie the intro to the conclusion and make a story out of that. And, and it just is a different, it's a different way to do it. So uh, I, I think a piece like on road lines could be quite dry. But uh, when, you, when you look at it and how it impacted things, I think you can actually make it quite interesting, which is, which is I think, this one, really, I learned quite a lot. When it, this, who would have thought that you know, it took so long, really, to figure out this idea? Uh, and I, the other day, one of my nephews asked, you know, why, you know, why do Americans drive on the, on the right side of the road and British drive on the left side of the road? And, you know, that's, we talk about that in this video. It's, yeah. it's an interesting story. Uh, and so I, it's compelling stuff. You do just have to put it together a little differently 
uh, so that you're not just say throwing out dates, so that you're actually building that as a, as a storyline about where we were and how we got to where we are. And we've got quite a few of those here on the History Guy. We, we like talking about technology, uh, but uh, I think one of the things that sets apart the History Guy is the ability to take something like road lines and turn that into a story. I agree, and it's I mean. For instance, when I was writing this one, it ends up being, and some, some of them more than others, but it kind of ends up being in some ways, you know, mini histories, because you get to talk about, it, it usually goes over a long period of, longer period of time, because mm-hmm. when we're telling a story about, you know, an event, that's usually something that occurred, if not, you know, within a few days, then months or whatever. But the, these ones will take, we, well, we go all the way back to the Middle Ages when they were uh, painting painting lines on the road to differentiate where the, the carts would go and where the carts uh, pedestrians people, walked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in Rome, which is really the beginning of it. Or, and some early uh, bridges that were built that had different yeah. color stones in the middle. That's uh, So, I mean, it, it does go back. But that, you know, the idea that even, you know, even in a time, because you still, I mean, medieval cities weren't as big and they didn't have cars. But, I mean, they were still big conglomerations of people and they had to have a, be very just bustling. And you had to have some way that everybody managed to do that and not get run over every day. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of interesting that it took, it took so long for the standards to be derived. And now they seem so intuitive. You can't imagine, you know, how right. you <laughs> functioned without them. Yeah. Although you still do get to see in some countries where uh, those lines are seem to be a little more of a suggestion than they are in the U.S. We yeah. we, we, we we take our traffic laws reasonably seriously here, uh, but everyone knows. I mean, you know, I don't have to think about what each lines mean. I know when I can pass and stuff like that. That's all stuff that we just learn it's, these days. And those and those rules, those laws do vary from. And it's where you yeah. learn to drive, you'll be used to it. So I mean, it is hard to follow. Uh, I've been uh, in the U.K. and over in Wales and things like that, and quite commonly they will have essentially a road probably was built on a roman road or that road might have been there for 300 years uh and uh it's really a one-lane road and and uh so you just kind of you know pull over the side <laughs> and I, there are if you go in the real back country in america you'll find one lane yeah. dirt roads and stuff like that but i mean man in wales they will whip down that like it's a highway and you just uh, i don't know how they're not killing each other every day and you just you know when you see another car coming you just like whip off and whew, it, it, it uh it always has me on the edge of my seat yeah, that's a different kind of that's that's. But I guess I guess if you that's where you learned and you kind of just figured out how you're supposed to do that. But yeah, yeah you know, we it's what we, you're used to. But I mean, uh, if someone learned the first time by ramming into someone, I, you got to know. Yeah, the here in the states, you know, we where some of our cities weren't even built when by the time we were building these roads, and so a lot of our in places like you know Paris where they had to uh, knock down a bunch of buildings to make long avenues and stuff like that, we were able to do mm-hmm. that a little more naturally. And so I mean, we have a very car based kind of city planning yeah, system yeah. there's i mean there's this story that uh you know henry ford tore up rails and and you know what to make sure and so i mean there are very various reasons but also part of it's it's, it's just the distances that have to do yeah. in the united states so even when we talk about something like high-speed rail here one of the problems with the way that america is that there's not always a good uh public transportation system in a city so if you if you got a train to a city then how do you get around that city I guess now you'd Uber, but uh, uh, yeah. So it's I mean, it, so it didn't even make sense to take a train because then you'd still need a car once you got there. And so yeah. a part, of, I mean, I, I'm not sure. Uh, and one of the interesting discussions we always have with audience here is whether we talk about miles or kilometers or try to get both. And there's there's ups and downs about both of them. But I'm not always sure uh, that that Europeans quite understand the distances involved in the United States. Uh, and uh, and that's part of the reason that we are such a car-driven culture, 
uh, is because it's, you know, it's very common that you're going to drive 30, 40 miles to a nearby town. I mean, that's, that's, uh, we do that quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, but also, I mean, you know, that uh, it's, it's, the distance from London to Moscow uh, is half the distance from uh, from New York to Los Angeles. I mean, I'm just not sure everybody. Sometimes when they're coming to visit, they're like, "I'm in New York. I want to see LA." Well, like you understand, that's <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> that's two continents away, and what you measure. <laughs> yeah, the and it's. I mean, that's one of the interesting uh, one of the interesting stories behind these road lines, and probably part of the reason why the U.S. picked up on them before almost anyone else did. Uh, we picked up on cars faster than most countries did, and that's. Mm. I think that's that's exactly that kind of thing. Is that we were we're just a very large country, and so you know if you hear about. Uh, Yellowstone or something like that, you were going to have to take a car to get there because anyone on the mm-hmm. east, I mean, is 1,500 miles more than that away from it. And that's that's not something you're going to do unless you've got something that moves quickly. Yeah, and it's, although, way. you know, in some ways the United States was relatively slow to coming to have, you know, interstate highways didn't come until after the war. It's also and, fair. But, I mean, it's it's true. People would hop in their car and go anywhere in America. And, I mean, some of those early, even early car trips across America, it's really interesting. Uh, and I, because of that, yeah, we used more roads, and that might be. It might be because the culture was, especially at the time, particularly innovative. But it's also certainly telling that the first couple of places that it happened was on a dead man's curve in Michigan and, and yeah. where a, a doctor in California almost got run off a road that you know, you had a blind curve and that's when someone figured out hey you know what would really be helpful so I mean it was just a matter of circumstance a matter of, of what was necessary it's it's it is cool to see how it but it was it was slow in so many ways I mean it was slow we were slow to get roads I, I think that we take roads for granted these days a little bit when it took I mean it took mm-hmm. a very long time to get roads there was a huge process in terms of who was supposed to be in charge of them you know how how we were going to handle roads that went between towns or outside of counties and stuff like that states, no, yeah across states yeah there's still some and, of and, that. and all the uh, I mean road signs all everything it took yeah. to kind of standardize and comes and, and some of those early answers for road signs you're like that's that's really not better yeah, than not, not marking a... it the way that is <laughs> So and that was uh, that was a fun episode too because I got to use a lot of like old uh, footage of uh, old automobiles and so some of those were from movies that are in the public domain and there's this one crazy one where it's it's essentially a comedy where these two policemen on on motorcycles are chasing a guy and and uh, so I mean it was. Uh, it, it, it's it's interesting because it's one of those things that everybody takes for granted that you never really thought how we got there. And when you think about it, there were multiple ways that we could have gotten there. We know that because it's done multiple ways around the world. And that just makes for, a, in the end, even though you're talking about a piece of technology as opposed to a story, it, it becomes quite an interesting story. I agree. And it's a story of how we became, I mean, how we get to this place where there are things that we can take for granted, I think is an interesting story because at some point, you know, people weren't taking that for granted and we still have you know we have our adjustments and our changes but it is you know nowadays you would think that our our the way we drive is pretty well set and it's amazing to think that it wasn't really that long ago when that was was not true coming up with the idea for someone to you know have speed limits and the fact that those limits were 12 miles in town and 15 <laughs> outside of town i mean that's sounds silly and i think it's a fun thing to talk about to be like yeah these this these were the speeds that you know the people driving first cars were were doing if they were going to be on the road and they probably were driving on a really rough road and sharing it with horses and <laughs> all kinds of other things but those uh videos that you were talking about are really fun to watch i i have to say some of them i don't understand it, it looks like absolute chaos they've just got the streets are full of people and just also cars <laughs> and, and also cars yeah and there and there's like 
frontal lymphoma. Yeah, the, the, there's one of uh, New York right at there. There's so you're seeing buggies along with cars, along with yeah. people, and it doesn't look like they're following much for rules. And yet, you know, you're not seeing people run over all the time. Uh, and I, there's another one on that one where there's for some reason they're driving the car into the river and the guy jumps out before it goes on the. And I have no idea what they were trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People are just so fascinated with cars that you could just make a movie where you just wreck a car and that would be the coolest thing. And yeah, I guess we, I guess we still like car wrecks, right? Uh, but those are so this this one was kind of fun to put together because we got to show a lot of that kind of yeah. old timey stuff and then talk about something that uh, everybody is familiar with and say you know how did we get to where we are and that's that's a really interesting story. And today, you know, we're talking about not just this one, but we're also going to talk about tires. And I think that these are a couple of histories that touch us, and especially in the U.S., but in many, many other places as well. Uh, we have a close relationship with our cars. <laughs> this is something that most people in the United States are going to be using, uh, if not every day, very close to it. Uh, this is a country where, you know, there's all kinds of things like commutes and stuff like that. I mean, people people know their cars, and people have spend a lot of time in their cars honestly which made me kind of wonder what was your first car i was <laughs> i did not come from the sort of family that bought you a new car when you were 16 so my first car uh, was a 1969 pontiac tempest uh, that my great aunt june had uh, owned uh, and great aunt june had gone blind and yet continued driving and so in order to protect her and the world from her, they had uh, they they gave the car to me so that she wouldn't be tempted to go drive when she couldn't see, uh, and it was uh, uh, I think it was originally blue. I would say that it was two tone blue and rust. Uh, <laughs> that's how I would describe it. And actually, I drove that uh, for a for a good deal of time, and then after that, I had an orange car. And I mean, it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had I had kind of beaters, but I mean, they got me around, and that was that was what was most important, getting you around. My first car, which came quite a bit later, of course, uh, was a 1996 Chevy Corsica, which was uh, similarly not in particularly good shape when I got it. But mm -hmm. <laughs> I did get it actually when I was 15. It was a car that uh, my aunt had bought at a police auction for not a lot of money. And so, I mean, when it never had very many miles. When I was driving it, it was like at 76,000 miles. And that was in... Uh, it was a 15-year-old car at that point, so it wasn't wasn't doing too bad for miles, but it was a tiny little 90s car. Uh, 1996 was the last time they were making those. And if you if you recall, we did one time drive up behind it, uh, and it had a bullet hole in the trunk. Uh, someone, yeah, someone, someone had shot a bullet hole through the trunk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one, uh, that, that car was mine, and then it was my brother's. Uh, and then it was, it went to a cousin, and I actually don't know where it is at this point, but <laughs> for... For if it's still driving, I would be impressed because it's 20, 20 and something years old, 25, six years old at this point. So, uh, but it was, it was a good little car. <laughs> yeah. When you first get wheels in the United States, I mean, uh, no matter what else you want to say, I mean, that was, that's, that's cool. I mean, you can finally go places and do things and, uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a massive change in your life. And yeah. so you remember that first car, even, even beater though it was. Yeah, which I think it's almost better for it to be a beater often. I did knock the mirror off that car hitting. I hit a parked car <laughs> not long after <laughs> I had first started driving it. So Yeah, it's, uh, you're going to bump a curb. You're going to be so hopefully you don't have a big accident and hopefully you're not texting and driving. Yes, right. But, uh, which happens <laughs> a lot now. But I mean, certainly, uh, you know, driving is something that you learn. And I guess a car that can uh, take a little bit of it and, you know, you don't have to worry about insurance because you're really not going to repair that anyway. So 
Well, apparently it's legal to drive a car without if you're missing just one of the side view mirrors. So that's yes. I drove that that car drove around a long time, and if it is driving, it is likely still driving with only without one side, because, yeah. side view mirror. Yeah, you just duct tape one of them on there. Sometimes you'll see that. Yeah, and it does. I think one of my favorite parts about you know this particular story. Uh, and, and some other ones as well that we've told, but it, it relates really well to so many other things about how technology, technological changes come, and they always come so much more quickly than rules do. You get the stuff, mm-hmm. nobody knows what to do with it, and now we have to try to keep up with it. And I think, I mean, we've seen that today so much, and you see it in the internet. Uh, and, absolutely, yeah, in the electronic age, that you yeah. know, the, it's hard to even keep up with. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I think that's still a challenge. I think very much is a challenge on what's regulation and what's fair. And and it's led to some you know significant discussions. Uh, we won't yeah. get into those because we kind of avoid politics here. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, whenever you have changes in technology, they're going to offer new challenges. And how you face those challenges, that's that's really the flow of history. I'm trying to stay ahead of them in terms of things like, you know, rules and how do you drive a car and how do you drive it safely and you know, who's at fault mm-hmm. if you hit somebody else's car. I mean, all that stuff was stuff they had to figure out. And essentially, I mean, they figured it out on the fly. I have mm-hmm. to imagine that the first person who hit someone else in a car was not a... They didn't have rules quite for how <laughs> how that was going to work out, but that was especially true. The first cars did not have any kind of speed limits. As we we're looking at in this one, they didn't have any kind of uh, road lines telling them which side of the road they were supposed to drive on or when to stop or <laughs> any of that kind of stuff. And so it's it's it, it's it kind has of to cool. Be amazing if you you know when you got your first car there, and then when you saw another car and had to figure out how you know who got yeah who got right away. How do you do? I, I just imagine you know you're in a hallway and you you. You're both walking at each other, and you try to try to pass by, and you keep like at, oh, 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 trying to go one direction and then the uh, other. Uh, yeah. yeah, except in a, at least those cars were not going uh, too terribly quickly. Although uh, I do know here in here in Wyoming, one of my uh, he'd be like a great 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 uncle or something like that was one of the first people in town to have a car, and he repeatedly wrecked it. <laughs> he was uh, <laughs> he he was nearly killed several times in it. Uh, before eventually actually being killed in a car accident. So he, he was apparently a bit of a hot rodder in those things. But he he wasn't driving this one time, but the, whoever was driving hit like a parked wagon that had a bunch of like big flower bags or something in it. It was something big and heavy. And so the car hit that, and apparently the car didn't actually come out all that well in that situation. And of course, there was no safety re- regulations. No one was wearing a seatbelt. So he had got injured in the scalp or something like that. And that's those are the kinds of things that I mean, so many people went through that. I don't know what the legal... Uh, is, is, yeah. Supposedly, yeah. someone probably had to pay for the damage, at least to the wagon. <laughs> Wasn't the wagon guy's fault? Yeah, the I don't know. I mean, how they, how they came to an agreement on that, that's, that's uh, yeah. interesting. Because someone's going to be mad and say, hey, you know, you owe me a wagon. Oh, yeah, right? Hitting it with your car just because you're being crazy? Well, and at that time, I think they're thinking, you know, dangerous speeds are really any speed faster than the horse goes. I do want to bring up, as many commenters have, and there's something we say that I wrote at the beginning that says, like, nearly all roads now have the, the lines. And a lot of people were like, hey, I've seen roads without those. And I, it's fair. There are a lot of roads without lines. And one of the things I didn't really think about when I was writing that part was that a lot of residential roads don't have lines. And so mm-hmm. a lot of us do spend time driving, but we do still obey the same rules, even if there yeah, is not the, the, a... the lines have become essentially suggestive because you yeah. know about their existence. You see them there in your mind. 
Uh, And you still could, I'm sure, be cited for driving on the wrong side of the road. But it is fair to say, and I think some other people said that, 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 I mean, that road lines seem to be ubiquitous, but I mean, that, you know, that's not necessarily true. And of course, the farther you get off the beaten path, the less that it's true. But yes, frequently those of us that lived in cul-de-sacs or housing developments, they don't, they don't paint the road. And uh, it's true. And uh, it's funny because you might not even notice that it's not painted because you were so used to. I, I think that that's kind of what hit me when I thought about that because when I was when I was thinking about road lines, I just didn't really consider places where there aren't <laughs> road lines. Yeah, I, yeah, you, you, know, you, you don't even notice because you just it's just kind of you know in your head that they're there. I mean, you yeah. literally can just imagine them. Still drive on the right side of the road. That's the that's that's how it goes, whether there's a line there or not. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? That's, uh, you know, there's always so much to watch on Magellan TV. So I was looking through things to watch, and I saw something about tornadoes. Of course, it's a season, and I do live in the Midwest. Uh, But this one's called Super Tornado Anatomy of a Mega Disaster, and happens to be about the 2011 tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri. And that's actually reasonably close to home. I live just across the river from Missouri. But at the time, I was uh, doing sales in Missouri, and that was part of my territory. So I was there, I don't know, maybe within a month of when that tornado hit and got to see the, I mean, the extent of that devastation was just stunning. It was absolutely breathtaking. The uh, episode on on Magellan, uh, which is very fascinating, it talks a lot about tornado formation and how they can get as big as they were at Joplin, and that's all very interesting. Uh, But it also talks about what they learned in the Joplin tornado. You know, for example, there's there's these braces that go on the, uh, just uh, on the roof of the house that are, they're almost always required along coastlines that aren't used much in the middle United States. Uh, And those make a huge difference about whether the roof comes off, because once one roof comes off on a house uh, in a neighborhood, then that just starts throwing the debris that can tear everything else up. Uh, And so when they rebuilt, then they required those little braces. They're just little bitty metal braces, but they made a huge difference. It's it's really fascinating, but it also, to me, I mean, it really brought back some memories. Uh, It's just a powerful video to watch uh, because of the how powerfully that that little city was impacted we do a lot of uh, weather extreme weather history on the history guy uh, and this one is uh, it's a particularly good one in terms of of understanding really uh, i mean it's not so much telling the story of the tornado it's it's really talking about what we learned from what happened and that's that was you know there were things in there that that really were uh, edifying so you, you just gotta love whatever you whatever you stumble on on magellan tv at something you might not have thought you're gonna watch and it ends up being just utterly fascinating i uh happened to be looking through some of the some of the stuff and they had featured a video on calamity jane it's called calamity jane legend of the west i was a little attracted to it there's a family story on my mom's side that somebody one of the early wyoming settlers here because my family has deep ties in wyoming on my mom's side uh was somehow got in trouble with calamity jane because my mom when she was a teenager wore this brand of jeans called calamity jeans uh, and her great aunt was absolutely furious because some, something about how Calamity Jane had once tried to kill her, her daddy. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting story. You know, it's another one of those stories of the West, and she was a really unique uh, personage. And it's just a great telling of her life. And she's honestly, it's, it ends up being mostly tragedy. Uh, she's, you know, she became a legend in her own time, and she still struggled to make a way for herself. It was very difficult to make a to you know, make a living as a woman in the in the West, even even though that might, it was maybe easier in the West than at the East at the time, kind of 
kind of a mixed bag, to be honest. But she was a really interesting character. I, there's one thing I've always really liked when I watch uh, these kinds of documentaries, and this has a lot of it. And that's those those kind of like uh, old timey reconstructions where they've got everybody riding wagons and with horses and stuff like that. I, I think those are always really kind of cool to see. And they've got quite a bit of that kind of re you know retelling her story. And so I think it's just a, a well produced story of her life. It ends up being I think that if you don't know much about Calamity Jane's story, I think you'll be kind of surprised exactly how her legend came to be and how much of that actually has to do with the reality of her life. But uh, one of those Wild West figures where there's, it's difficult to separate the legend yeah. from the reality. Yeah, well, and she, she kind of encouraged that. So just like everything we've watched on Magellan TV, it's always top-notch. It's going to tell you the stories that you want to hear. And there is absolutely so much range. You can watch yeah, something absolutely. on that weird one of weather. us was watching Wild West, and the other one was watching a tornado from 2011, and both found it fascinating. That's one of the reasons why it's always, it's always. I watch Magellan TV pretty much every day, and it's absolutely worth your subscription. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com/historyguy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash history guy. Next up, the history guy is going to talk about the history of tires. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us talk a little more with the history guy. It is estimated that there's about a billion motor vehicles in use in the world today, and while those vary anywhere from a tiny scooter to a giant tractor-trailer, they all have a few things in common, among them that thing that connects them to the road. A very basic piece of a modern vehicle, most people use tires on a regular basis today. They become so ubiquitous that we barely think of them until, of course, one goes flat. But the history of the tire goes back farther than you might think, and has played an outsized role in human history. That spot where the rubber meets the road is history that deserves to be remembered. Any history of the tire has to start with the invention of the wheel. While we call wheels simple machines, using the wheels for vehicles requires an additional piece, the axle. The relationship between the axle and the wheel had to be precise. The axle needed smooth, rounded edges to fit into the wheel, or else friction would make it too difficult to move, and had to fit snugly, but not too snugly, or the wheels wouldn't rotate. Making a thicker axle increased friction and weight, but making a thin one meant the cart wouldn't support a load. Many early wheels were made from thick trunk trees to make large wheels with fewer pieces, and later would be replaced by spoked wheels, which lasted longer. Wheelwrights, or people who craft wheels, needed metal tools to properly form the wheels and the axle, which weren't invented till around 4000 BC, which is probably why wheels were not invented till around 3500 BC. It's not clear exactly where the wheel originated, although toy wheels exist across Mesopotamia, modern Russia, and Europe. The oldest discovered wheel was found in Slovenia, dating to about 3150 BC. Wooden wheels faced the issues of wear as they rolled along dirt roads, fields, and rocky paths. A particularly sharp rock or rough bend could take a chunk out of a rim and ruin the whole wheel, even if most of the rim was in good condition. This is where the tire came in. Societies began using tires to lengthen the life of their wheels, and tires were much cheaper to replace than the entire wheel. Excavations at the ancient Mesopotamian city of Ur found the remains of chariots and leather, one of the earliest materials used as a tire. 
Later, wheelwrights used iron and then steel as tires, usually taking a ring of steel smaller than the metal, heating it so as that it expanded to a size greater than the wheel, and then cooling it around the wooden wheel so that the metal would fit tightly against the rim. Roman racing chariots may have used an iron tire on only the right wheel, because that wheel bore the brunt of the vehicle's weight in races on oval tracks, where racers constantly turned left. Leaving it off of the other wheel would have been a compromise in favor of lighter, faster chariots. In the Middle Ages, tires were often made of strips of irons called strakes, or shoes, which were nailed across joints in the wheel's rim. Early wheels with strakes in England were said to be shod. The word tire probably comes as a shortened version of the word attire, based on the idea that a wheel with a tire was dressed. Strakes replaced loop metal tires sometime after the fall of Rome, only for loop tires to become common again in the 18th century. Until the 1800s, wheels and tires were primarily used for relatively slow vehicles, and metal tires did the job well, though they did little to insulate the rider from bumps in the road. The earliest bicycles, such as Carl von Drees' Velocipede, used metal-shod wheels. Rubber, as we understand it, is a process material. Natural rubber begins as a kind of tree sap called latex, and it didn't have much utility. It's very sticky in its natural state and heavily affected by temperature. It is soft and even melts when warm and becomes stiff and cracks when cold. Charles Goodyear first became interested in rubber in the 1830s when he examined some goods for the Roxbury Rubber Company in Boston. Using the rubber especially to make products waterproof, the company struggled because the rubber would become sticky and decompose rather quickly, leading to products being returned by dissatisfied customers. Goodyear spent years working on the problem on his own, tried a number of processes to make rubber more durable and longer lasting, first mixing it with magnesia and later dipping the gum into nitric acid. Obsessed with making rubber useful, he struggled to make ends meet, financing his work with various creditors and often ending up in debtor's prison. In 1839, he was working at the Eagle India Rubber Company in Woburn, Massachusetts, when he accidentally combined rubber with sulfur on his stove. To his surprise, this hardened the rubber considerably, and when he raised the temperature, it only hardened more instead of melting. It took some time for him to perfect the process, but he had perfected it sufficiently to receive patent number 3633 in 1844. But Goodyear's patent ran into difficulty, as just eight weeks before, manufacturing engineer Thomas Hancock had received his own patent in England for the process, which would come to be called vulcanization after the Roman god of fire and the forge, Vulcan. In patent disputes, it was noted that Hancock had studied samples of Goodyear's rubber as early as 1842, but chemists said it would have been impossible to discover Goodyear's process by examining his rubber samples. Goodyear spent much of what he earned from his patent on patent disputes in the United States and abroad, and died virtually penniless in 1860. Actually, processed rubber has a history much longer than that. Ancient Mesoamerican cultures had been curing rubber for millennia. The Central American civilization of the Olmecs means rubber people in the Aztec language. Rubber was culturally significant for Central Americans, taken naturally from trees and mixed with other plant material to make a more durable cured type. It was used in making the balls for the famous Central American ball games. The rubber was not vulcanized, but it was processed. Vulcanized rubber revolutionized rubber as a material, which became quickly important in building machines, waterproofing clothing, and countless other goods. Shortly after Goodyear's invention, companies began to produce solid rubber tires, which were improvements on metal tires, but still not especially shock absorbent. In 1847, Scottish inventor Robert William Thompson used a rubber belt encased inside leather to patent the first airfield pneumatic tire, which created a cushion of air to the ground, rail, or track on which they run. Thompson put them on several carriages and displayed the improvement in rider comfort at Regent's Park in London, but his tires never entered production. 
A practical tire was not invented until the 1890s, when in Belfast, Ireland, prominent Scottish-born veterinarian John Boyd Dunlop saw his young son struggling to ride a solid rubber-wheeled tricycle. Using a rubber sheet, he created a tube, filled it with air sufficient to support his son, wrapped it in linen, and nailed it to a wooden disc. The results were startling when he tested it against solid rubber tires. The pneumatic tires made for a considerably smoother ride decreased the loss of speed from friction. In 1888, Dunlop received a patent for his invention. This would lead to the commercial breakthrough for pneumatic tires. Willie Hume, a Belfast cyclist, heard from Dunlop that the tires might give him an advantage in bicycle races and became one of the first to buy a bicycle with pneumatic tires. He promptly won all four cycling events at Queen's College in Belfast in 1889. Irish financier and president of the Irish Cycling Association, Harvey Ducraw, was at the meeting that day with some of his sons and saw a financial opportunity. With a little negotiation, he bought the patent and began the first pneumatic tire company in time for a major bicycle craze in the 1890s. Unfortunately for both Dunlap and Ducraw, the patent was invalidated because of Thompson's earlier pneumatic tire, but they were able to continue producing the tires. Ducraw quickly began mass-producing pneumatic bike tires and floated the public company that would become Dunlop Tires. Nearly simultaneously, brothers Edward and André Michelin developed their own pneumatic tire, a removable one that was used by the winner of the world's first long-distance bicycle race from Paris to Brest in 1891. Michelin would become the first to use pneumatic tires on a new invention, the automobile. In 1898, Goodyear Tire and Rubber was founded in Akron, Ohio, in commemoration of Charles Goodyear. One of the remaining difficulties was that it was hard to balance securing the tire firmly to the wheel while also making it easy to replace. English-born Thomas B. Jeffrey, who had immigrated to the United States at 18, came up with a tire that could be secured to the rim using hard rubber flanges locked into the wheel rim. He received the patent in 1892, and in the early years of automobiles, it was the most common kind of tire on American cars. Goodyear and Firestone would later come up with a different style of tire, the straight-side tire, which would become more common for motor vehicles. The proliferation of motor vehicles unsurprisingly drove the demand for more and better tires. The turn of the century also brought mountable rims that would become standard for motor vehicles. These rims made it easier for automobile owners to change their own tires. Poor road conditions necessitated the introduction of a spare tire, which came standard with the Thomas B. Jeffrey Company's Rambler model. Faster vehicles needed better tires for smoother rides, especially before road technology caught up with the new traffic. Other early 20th century innovations included the tubeless tire, which didn't see widespread use until after World War II, grooved and treaded tires, which improved friction on the road as well as tire life, and the addition of carbon black, which gives tires their black color and also significantly reinforced the tire. A significant change came with the creation of synthetic rubbers, freeing rubber companies from relying on natural sources. The first synthetic rubber was created in Germany at a Bayer laboratory, and the Russians used another kind to supplement rubber supplies during World War I. Rising costs of natural rubber drove research, as did World War II, when Japan, who controlled 90% of the world's natural rubber production, cut off that supply to the United States. Military vehicles needed an enormous amount of rubber. Planes needed half a ton, and a battleship needed 75 tons of rubber in construction. Wartime necessity brought innovation. In 1942, American rubber companies were producing only around 2,200 tons of synthetic rubber. By 1945, they were producing 920,000 tons a year. Demand for greater gas mileage pushed the commercial use of tubeless tires, and in 1946, the radial tire was invented, which massively improved fuel efficiency and handled higher speeds compared to the previous bias-ply tires. 
Radial tires caught on quickly in Europe and Asia, but not in America. The big American tire producers, including Firestone and Goodyear, were slow to pick up. And in the 1960s, Michelin struck a deal to sell radials through Sears, and were soon selling a million units per year. B.F. Goodrich began producing American-made radials to quickly take market share. American companies like Firestone tried instead to improve bias ply tires, unwilling to make the expensive changes to their factories, as well as give up the lucrative replacement market. Goodyear stemmed the tide with belted bias tires, but in 1968, Consumer Reports put two radial tires as their best picks of the year. By the early 1970s, car manufacturers like Ford switched to radial, and American companies pivoted to filling the demand. Using imperfectly adaptive machinery, American companies struggled to make high-quality options. Firestone had to recall 8.7 million tires in 1978 and was eventually bought out by Japanese-based Bridgestone. In fact, the only two major historically American tire companies left today are Goodyear and Cooper Tires. And tires continue to develop new designs, new run-flat versions that are intended to prevent blowouts, and new tire pressure monitoring systems means that tires are more durable and dependable than they ever were before, and they continue to be an essential part of modern society. Tires have played a critical role in human history, from facilitating early trade to facilitating the modern urban lifestyle through the proliferation of automobiles. And while we still hear stories that we might have flying cars in the future, it seems like tires are going to be with us for a good long time to come, and manufacturers continue to make improvements with new designs and new materials that are more environmentally friendly and even airless tires, and that all suggests that we'll continue using tires well into the future, even if we may no longer be stuck fixing them on the side of the road. For the modern American, I think most of us really only deal with tires, even though we're using them every single day. We only really deal with them when we have to buy new ones. And I don't think there's anyone that really enjoys that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, tire shopping is not usually the favorite thing to do. I mean, there's probably people that are uh, that are very much into, you know, the tires. But I, I can say, I mean, over my lifespan, the, the longevity of tires has changed dramatically. Uh, and so I, you can own a car for its whole lifespan now and not change a tire. But, I mean, it feels like you used to, you know, fairly frequently be changing the things. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they're one of those things that you kind of take for granted until uh, it's busted. And then, uh, you know, when, then when you have the flat tire, then you have to deal with it and then you think about it. Yeah, I've, I've replaced more than a few tires because I was driving older cars. Or I guess I ran one tire probably closer to the uh, the end of its life than I should have because we were we were – driving across Nebraska and the tire blew out on the highway. Fortunately, it was not, uh, it just, we just slowly <laughs> came to a stop on the side of the road. But that was not, that was not the most fun. I've heard of worse stories, though, with those tires going out in the interstate. I think that it's, uh, it's one of those things that we, again, you take, you take tires for granted a little bit because you don't have to think about them too much. Uh, but we use them so much. This is another good example of how all of these kind of like many histories, like we talked about in the last one, can kind of make up the history mm -hmm. of a single item. And so with this one, we even went back uh, to all the way back to wheels, which is an, was an interesting thing for me, too, because you talk you end up talking about these like uh, these wheels couldn't yeah. be invented the way that we thought they could, you know, the way we use them unless we have the axle. And I, I don't know. I hadn't necessarily considered that how. Yeah, how... you go back to the axle. But it's true. The first tires were metal. They were the, yeah. you know, the metal, the ring that went around to, to preserve the, the, the wheel. Yeah, Which so is you, really it's hard to think about it that way, but it really serves the same purpose uh, yeah. that, you know, the tires on a car do. 
Yeah, and yeah, the when you're talking about a piece of technology, that's always a question: how far back do I go, and how much do I abbreviate the long past? And because you have to say those are antecedents, uh, yeah. And that's yeah. Well, we've talked about you know transistors or telephones or whatever you want to talk about. You know, how far back do you go as as the symbol of it? And whatever you leave out, someone's you know going to notice. I, I think once I was talking about train tracks, and I. And I, I wasn't really talking about the history of the locomotive. I just mentioned something like, you know, locomotives could be built after Watt perfected the steam engine. Well, you know, Watt's engines didn't move. And yeah. there are a lot of people that took the steam engine and turned that into locomotives. And there were people that were upset about that. I'm like, uh, you know, what's, what's the video really about? Uh, and so it is, it is a challenge for us to figure out how far back do you want to go. And uh, that's part of, you know, what we do to try to fit an episode to the length that we want, a story that makes the most sense. Uh, and that's kind of fun. I mean, it's you know, one of the things about being the history guy or writing for the history guy is that you, you get some creative control over how to take you know this history and turn that yeah. into the story that's going to make the most sense of the you know in the, in, a, in an episode. Because ultimately, you know, no piece of history happens in a vacuum. Everything that happens is is affected by all the things going on on around it. And you know, with stories like these, that's that's maybe especially clear. Uh, because yeah. if you if you go back to starting with wheels and axles, I mean, how much do we want to talk about that? And so it's fairly abbreviated in this. We could probably do a whole episode on the on wheels, except that it's kind of prehistory. Um, but it's it's interesting to see kind of this whole tapestry of how history works because it's 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 really tapestry is kind of too simple an explanation because it's got so many more dimensions than that mm-hmm. and so many more connections. But it's interesting how that makes us how that affects us to write these stories because we have to come up with how do we write this story and then of course yeah. uh what interesting facts you want to put in there's i always leave stuff out that i decide okay even though that's cool is it really related to is what really i'm trying related? to talk yeah, do we have, about can we fit it in and yeah it's it's part of the decision making and whatever you do then someone's going to say well why didn't you mention so and so yeah yes uh, and, and you just can't it mentioned everybody. Yeah. yeah, or it would be, you know, it would get to the point where that was dull. So, I mean, there's a reason that we stick in our 5 to 15-minute time frame, and that's what we're aiming for. Uh, and uh, this is a good example of that because there's so many things that are related to it yeah. uh, that you could that you could weave into the discussion of tires. And, and sometimes, you know, when you get to that, you're like, I can make a whole episode on that, and that becomes something else later. Yeah, there's there's several things that I've that I've been like, oh, that's such an interesting story. I've even like taken pieces of scripts out and been like, okay, that that'll that can go turn into a whole you know a whole script. Yeah, it'll we'll later. make something else out of that later. Yeah, but so these are I mean these were two challenging scripts. Uh, Josh wrote both of the scripts that we're talking about today, and if if you didn't know, if uh, I write many of the scripts, I mean it's uh, I'm not just a talking head, uh, but we have other writers. Josh is our lead writer, uh, but uh, we also have some other people who write scripts. Most of the scripts are Josh and I, but there's a few others. Uh, and if you look in the description of one of the YouTube videos, it's going to say with script by, it's going to tell you who wrote the script. But, I mean, we really worked to get a single voice that comes across in the history guy. And these are two yeah. very interesting scripts that are, it had particular challenges writing them. And, they, and uh, they, they're they really things where you learn quite a lot. I mean, when we go to write, there's a couple of rules that we follow. One is always say, write what you want to write. Uh, that is, don't feel compelled to write something, write what's interested to you, because I think our audience wants to hear something we're truly passionate about. And the other thing is to is to make content that you would want to watch. Uh, and so when you're making those decisions, when you're making the cut down and and, and, and whatever you want to do, uh, that's that's what you have to kind of do is to say, what's going to make this the story that I would be more likely to, you know, to stay for the story? And, is, it, you know, sticking to that has done us, you know, rather well. 
Yeah, I think it's it's worked out. And if you can uh, kind of look at this episode as an example, uh, we only talk a little bit about wheels, and we talk about how uh, kind of why the why the need for tires came to exist with the fact that you know if you've got a big old solid wooden wheel, getting a chunk out of it uh, requires replacing the whole wheel. And so you know you put the steel tire on it, and then you get a lot more life out of your wheel. Uh, but we spend a bit more time talking about rubber because for uh, modern tires and for the last uh, century or more of of tire existence rubber has been how we do it and vulcanization is just an incredibly important piece of kind of how Mm -hmm. how tires have come to exist from bicycles and and then into cars and it's it's just an interesting tale especially you know we talk about the fact that you know the american uh, tire companies were kind of among the first to be really successful and then end up kind of failing to advance with the times when it comes to the radial tires. I think that's an interesting story of kind of how the baton of history ends up being passed in that kind of way. And those were those were companies that were really important and historic and then uh, end up making decisions that led to their financial ruin sometimes. And that's just kind of an interesting thing to think about how many of those companies, you know, existed and no longer do. I I agree that we learn so much when we're talking about these kinds of episodes, even if I have like a basic idea of what I'm writing. And we all have, you know, some basic understanding of tires. We have to use them all the time. But when we go to look at the histories of them, it's always shocking to me what pieces of it I hadn't even considered were going to be connected that are. And so we end up with this whole story that we even go back a little bit to talk about processed rubber. And that's, we, we mentioned that the, the Aztecs and the, the Olmecs especially were people using processed rubber in centuries before we were uh, vulcanizing mm-hmm. it. And that, that kind of, it's, it's an interesting thing to connect. I thought it was important enough for us to talk about that. Yeah, to leave it in. And that's, yeah. that's one of the things you have to make a decision about when you're talking yeah. about it. But I think you did a, a fantastic job of it. And, but I mean, there's still pieces uh, oh, that yeah. we could probably do a whole other episode on things that we're just touching on in one place or another. I did want to bring up, because this is something that I saw on uh, TikTok, which I think is just a little interesting that we're talking about this today. Uh, there is currently a viral debate about what there are more of in the world, doors or wheels. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why uh, those two things specifically have become, you know, which w- the, the, the verses, why those two are fighting it out. But since we're talking about tires, it seemed like a good time for uh, for the history guy to weigh in. Uh, do you well, think there are how more are wheels or doors? Wheels, wheels here, because I everybody knows I collect a lot of stuff. I do collect mm-hmm. a number of little vintage cars. So I mean, in this house, if you count the wheels, just like the wheels on car on the cars upstairs, we we have more doors than wheels. But if you count all the wheels on my little toy cars, then the wheels are wildly because every car's got four wheels but only two doors most of yeah. those toy cars so if they I, have a door I, I, a functioning door at all if right? they have that's a door the... at all that's right quite a few of them have no door at all so uh, that's a uh, that's a difficult question uh uh, uh wow uh it's interesting what will go viral. That's what I would say. Right. About it, is, is I, that. I agree with with the uh, the difficulty of the defining it because wheels are uh I feel like wheels are a little doors seem to have, you know, a pretty strict rule in terms of how they have to work whereas like wheels can be just parts of things. Uh so it's so true. I wonder if that If you talk too. about all the wheels that are spinning inside your dishwasher, yeah, and uh, that that dramatically increases the number of wheels in your own in your own house, yeah. I saw the uh the the US Postal Service did a video and one of the things that they counted as wheels were the the rollers on their uh oh, conveyor belts. 
Yeah, okay, <laughs> and I'm like, if those yeah. counts, if those count, if those count as wheels, then like, yeah, there's like, you got 400 of those uh, to yeah, you know, yeah, travels because you, <laughs> you got fans inside your computers and you got yeah you know, wherever you go, then your your house is full of those too. Yeah, so uh, I. I I, uh, I agree. I'm not sure exactly. It might depend a little bit on how you determine exactly what counts as a door and what counts as a wheel. Um, it is, per- I, it is it's certainly an interesting statement on society that we that will that's... apply effort to the question. Um, I, I have seen a number of videos of people at FedEx or the USPS being like, this is how many doors we have. This is how many wheels we have. Uh, in general, it seems like they, they think that there are more wheels than there are doors, but I do wonder well, if, you're, if you're a delivery place. I mean, if you can't, if if you're only counting like serious wheels, like wheels on cars and bikes, uh, then my house has probably twice as many doors, more than that, more than twice as many doors as we have wheels. It uh, is uh, with the doors. There is some questions too, because does a garage door count? And a garage door is well, using how your garage wheels, door right? Count? Right. Well, it's true. It's got. That's right. Your one garage door's probably got twelve wheels on it. Yeah. Uh, like what about? Wheels. Like the doors on, like, you know, if you're opening pieces of, like, your microwave door. Well, that one seems like it would oh, have that's to count right. the refrigerator what about doors. All the doors on the, if you count all the doors on your cabinet doors. I was thinking about yeah. room doors. Cabinet doors. Uh, what exactly are our, our definitions for what is wow. a door and what is a... But uh, I don't know if we're ever going to accomplish anything by uh, answering that question. But I do think that's it's true. kind of a fun question. <laughs> that's true. I mean, uh, uh, the, it would be interesting because there would have to be some sort of blue ribbon panel that would decide what qualifies yeah. as... Yeah, and then, when, then we've got to some sort of somehow count comprehensive them all. Comprehensive sound, yeah. Because obviously, like the place, you know, just down the street over here, where this is, this is where they are a trucking company, and they got lots and lots of tractors and trailers and stuff. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if UPS or the Postal Service has more wheels than doors. But there's a lot more houses uh, than true. there are post offices, and most houses will only have you know one or two cars. And so, boy, it's. Uh, uh, it, it is this one of the grand mysteries of nature. I don't know if it's answerable. It's it's up there with, you know, with 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 the great math theorems. You know, the, the unsolvable problems. You know, how would you, are, are how there would more, you determine are there more doors than wheels? How would you determine it? And ultimately, depending on which one wins, how much does it matter? I think it's a good I would question. historically, which came first? That's actually That's a fair question, question too. I don't know yeah. because the the we hinge... don't really know when either was invented specifically. But I mean, yeah. No. Well, and I know a lot of like the really ancient, uh, uh, what was, I'm going to pronounce its name wrong. I think it's Katolhoyuk is one of the oldest, uh, one of the oldest settlements. And their, their settlements seem to be like all kind of built on top of each other, but they don't have doors like we think of them. They would have holes in the roofs that they would, that they would go in through. And yeah. I mean, if you've got a structure, you've got a hole, which could be a door. Yes. But I mean, a, but, the idea of a, of a door, of a closable door, I mean, did that predate when they were moving things by wheel or I don't know. I don't know. I that's don't know it, if the, the hinge is, a, is another one of those kind of simple Both, machine things. Both, I'm sure, occurred in prehistory, yes. Probably. Probably we can't say exactly who invented the door, but it would be an interesting question. Might look into that. I wonder if there's an interesting history of doors. Haven't considered it. <laughs> I never know what'll pop up. I see. It'll be the next episode. Doors. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. 
You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.